Welcome, everybody. Congratulations on an extraordinary uh, six-part series, as Polly mentioned at, at the beginning of the screening there. Um, Willow, I'd like to start with you, if I may. The, the case is uh, around 35 years old. Why did you want to do a new series about it now? How did it come about? It's, an, um, it's a really fascinating story. It's been part of our social and cultural history for a long time. Um, and it's also a case that's very contested. But, um, and that in itself is fascinating. But over and beyond that, it's a case that it's very easy in the riddle of the crime story to lose sight of the human tragedy at the heart of this. And I think that no other treatment of it had really done justice to that. And it just felt like it, you know, that was the important thing for us and that was the starting point. And then I believe it was based on, on two different books. Can you talk me through the, the different books and what influence they both had? Yeah, so the, fir the, the two books were Caroline Lee's book, um, The Murders at White House Farm. It's a meticulously researched book, which if you want to know more about the detail of the crime, that's where you should go. But it was really Colin's book, um, and Colin's here tonight, um, that really, it was really struck. It's an incredibly brave um, powerful book that um, Colin wrote about surviving and making sense of this tragedy and um, reading that book for Chris the writer and for all of us really it really brought that that kind of human tragedy to the heart of it for us and the human angle and that's what was our starting point and in many ways that was our touchstone wouldn't you say all the way through yeah very much well it was as you say it was the kind of the human the human story at the heart of it it's, it's a family it's a tragedy and uh, I mean, certainly speaking for myself, I had some knowledge of the crime only from the sort of the tabloid headlines of the time. So no real insights into actually how uh, the, the, investi the police investigation was, how, how deeply flawed it was to begin with and how ultimately um, the spotlight shifted from Sheila to Jeremy. So and actually how the family themselves were integral to the shift in that police investigation. Um, so, so many kind of fascinating human elements to the way the story unfolds, which is, I think it's another one of those crimes where it's a story a lot of us think we know, but we're truly, we don't. Presumably, with it being such a long-running case, it took a, a long time for Jeremy Bamber to be convicted anyway, and of course, there must have been a massive cast of different police officers, different family and friends. How did you go about getting that into, into six hours? Was that a challenge? I mean, it's always a challenge, and I'm, you know, Paul, you should probably talk yeah. about this too, but it is always a challenge when you're dealing with a true story, making decisions about what to leave in and, 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 and leave out. And, yeah, that is un inevitably a challenge, but you just you keep testing, you keep, you know, making sense of the choices that are being made. Yeah, and the, and the truth, the, the, you know, you, the truth is still there. I mean, it's still, uh, for example, Stan Jones probably was not a lone voice in terms of people questioning the original police investigation. Um, but you can't have, then, a cast of... 20 detectives, or however many it were, who were kind of taking the opposite view from the hierarchy. So you, um, so you distill the truth into, into fewer characters, if you like, but that is still the truth. There is still um, the, uh, the fact that the hierarchy, the Essex Police hierarchy, uh, took one point of view of this crime, and it was other, um, more junior officers, in a way, that, that saw it differently. <laughs> so the, you, you never kind of divert from the truth. You kind of distill the truth into... Uh, into, into kind of shorter story beats, if you like, or, or individual characters. Yeah. 
Willow, you mentioned that Colin is here. Just to let the audience know, there will be an opportunity to ask questions of our panel later. Uh, Colin has also very kindly agreed to answer any questions if you had any for him. So, so do have a think and we'll let you have that opportunity. You, you, and some, you managed a, an extraordinary cast. I mean, too many to mention, really, but just so that people know that we do have in the audience today Mark Addy, Mark Stanley and Cressida Bonas as well are with us tonight. Uh, and, of course, Freddie. Um, Freddie, tell me a little bit about approaching this role. I mean, clearly you've put a huge amount of research and huge amount of effort into that before you even arrived on, on set. Yes, I mean, I'm louder than everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> um, of course you are. I, I didn't plan that. <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, of course, you know, you, you, I didn't know about the story before it began, and as soon as you found, I found out about it, uh, I, you, you feel duty-bound is the lightest possible uh, phrase that I could use to describe uh, what you feel in order to, to get it right as best you possibly can. A big part of that, along with the <coughs> sort of fastidious personal research that you do, uh, or I did, and the sort of broad spectrum of sort of angles into it that I tried to, to access, you do have to. The essential ingredient is trust in the people that you're working with. I, I've said it many times, but I can't praise Paul really enough for that because Paul's the linchpin for all of those things, the sounding board for every decision that you make, every mistake that you might make in, in order to try and correct it as, you're, as you're, you're forming the character, as you're going through shooting. So I think that had a great deal to do with, um, with, 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 with the performance that I, I gave. Was there a particular moment where, where you read something or, or you saw a piece of TV footage and thought, gosh, that's him, I, I know what I'm doing now? I don't know, there's certain things that jump out for you, certainly from uh, having interviewed Colin, spoken to Colin extensively about it, interviewing uh, criminal psychologists uh, and, and listening to Bamba's voice. There's not much video footage of him, but there is a lot of audio. Flex performance, I think, because we, we, we talked a lot about not fully always getting inside Jeremy's head, because yeah. we can never really understand. No, and the way that I think you just said it to me at the beginning about how where you wanted to place the camera, particularly early on, mm. is always slightly off the angle mm -hmm. on Jeremy. So you're always slightly looking at observing him rather than subjectively being with him. And again, makes him more mysterious and more strange. And I think it's appropriate that you don't ever tell the story from his point of view, one, because we'll never know, mm. and two, because, you know, he's in prison for killing everyone. There's not much footage, as you mentioned, but there is, I'm sure it's not a spoiler to say, that, that later on there is um, the funeral scene, yeah. um, which people may well remember, and it's certainly easily Googleable if they want to be. Is that, um, is that a real challenge when you know that that footage is quite famous and you know that people will be, will be remembering it as they watch it? Well, they did. In fact, my agent, who actually isn't here tonight, but she, she was on set, and my agent, who is here tonight, was there, was, <laughs> were, both of them were there to, uh, on the day that we shot that. And I harrowed particularly because, Bella, you're far too young to have been there or to have remembered it, uh, remembers the footage very well and said it was quite... It's because it's such an infamous image. And, I, uh, and, and so, again, so contested because it, it, to a lot of people, it feels like he's performing. And it, it does feel very arch. And certainly Colin has a, has a, a, a obviously behind-the-scenes view of exactly what happened that day. Uh, and I suppose I, it was the one thing that I really was really determined that res the researchers on the show were able to provide me with because I wanted to try and get it as close as I possibly could to how it was. And that, I suppose, was the only element of imitation, direct imitation of him. The rest was... Uh, an interpretation. Yes, and we can of course talk to talk to Colin and find out the answer ourselves shortly. But but what did Colin say to you about your your performance? <laughs> well, Colin was very kind, <laughs> as kind as you can be, describing 
it's quite hard to talk about in a weird way. Um, but uh, we should ask Colin. Yeah, I think so. Where is yeah. Colin? Colin's at the back there. Hi, Colin. <laughs> is it possible to get a microphone to Colin? That is a good time to bring him in. Hi, Colin. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> it, it must be a very odd experience for you, of course. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you feel watching that? Um, for me, I'm quite detached from it now because it is 35 years ago. Um, and it's something I sort of became at peace with about 25 years ago. Uh, so it's rather surreal to see it dragged out again. Um, but I'm glad that it is happening, um, mainly because it kind of it, it, it puts the lie to rest. Um, and I think it's been done very well uh, within the restrictions of a six-hour drama. Uh, there's an awful lot they've had to leave out, some I'm sad about, un inevitably. But um, on the whole, I think it works very well. Freddie, when I first met him for coffee um, to, to talk about his character, um, I showed him some letters that uh, Jeremy sent to me. And he read them quietly, and he said, I've got him, I know him. And, and I could see his face change. Um, and he, and his, once his hair was dyed, it was spot on. Yeah, that's all I can say, it's brilliant. Thank you, Freddie. Thank you, mate. Thank you, Colin. I, I, as I said, there may well be more questions for you later, so uh, if you don't mind. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Lee, perhaps I'll, I'll bring you in at this point while we're talking about the sort of authenticity and so on. Tell me a little about where you filmed. I mean, again, anybody who, who goes when Googles that house or who remembers it, I mean, it really does look strikingly like the house, but, but it yeah. doesn't. Yeah, we sh I mean, we sh said that last thing, yeah, sorry. Sorry? I so missed that Strikingly like it. Strikingly like it. Yeah, yeah, like we, we, uh, I mean, we looked all over around London for... Uh, the farm itself and we found some really good contenders some of which had a really good working farm atmosphere that we were tempted by but actually at the end of the day um, this this house that we found um, and Paul slept on it before we made the decision which is a really good thing to do uh, was ended up being 25 miles away from the actual place but it had a strikingly strong resemblance to the actual house and also the layout was almost the exact mirror of it so, which meant that you know, this hallmark of trying to be as authentic as possible, given the restraints, uh, was, was part of that, so that we could actually really try to trace our steps through this crime scene. And, um, but we shot in, uh, in 67 days, we shot in about 33 locations. We were in White House Farm itself, our location, for a good couple of weeks or so, which meant we, were, we had quite a fast turnover of locations, no sets, really, one, one small set. And that was, we pretty much did and sort of, big slice of the cake around London apart from the West um, so we shot all over the place really. Did you include any of the, the real life locations? No only all? well only the uh, Chelmsford court. the Crown Court uh, the, and we, we, we couldn't film in the exact same courtroom because that had been um, modernised and security had been upgraded so it was going to be very impossible to actually authentically uh, reconstruct that as it was uh, because we could only film at weekends um, but we had the room next to that, which still gave the really good atmosphere of filming. And in terms of authenticity as well, I've, I've not seen many actors accept this before, but um, when we shot the, uh, the courtroom scenes, uh, even if we weren't pointing in this direction, we would have most of the actors and uh, SAs filling the room just to create that atmosphere, and it, uh, it really helped give that kind of authentic feel. And what were you both looking for in terms of, well, all three of you, I suppose, looking for in terms of the overall visual? 
Well, I think I, I think that's something that Paul, you should mm. speak about. I, um, yeah, I think authenticity is right. I, I think, uh, particularly in terms of the farmhouse, the, the understanding that crime scene is crucial mm -hmm. to the story. I mean, we've talked about the human tragedy, which is which is kind of the heart of the story, but we also we we follow the investigation and and understanding both the the sort of the narrative of the crime if you like is vital and and so actually in terms of those decisions you know the biggest challenge i think we all faced with how to represent that crime scene was how much we show mm -hmm. how much is too much um, but how much is necessary in order to understand the crime so we would kind of face all the way through shooting and right up to the kind of you know, um, the picture lock about how to represent the crime scene. And even what after to show. that. Well, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> the, those conversations went on. And um, because you want to be honest about the horror and the brutality of, of that crime, uh, you need to understand the crime itself, the, the, the try and piece together what happened inside that house that night, which nobody will truly ever know, but you need to understand certain aspects of it to understand the story. And, um, but also the whole thing is governed by the, 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 the respect for the victims. Yes. Um, and how much, as I say, how much is too much, and, but how much do you need to show in order to um, tell the story properly? Um, Having directed uh, Little Boy Blue and Hatton Garden in the past, what would you say your sort of number one rules are when it comes to directing a real-life crime? What are the challenges that you need to overcome? Um, Have you learned anything from those that you took into this one? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> lots, indeed. Um, well, I, I mean, that, every story has, has its own kind of unique uh, requirements in that, in that respect. Uh, and as I say, this one was very much kind of about the crime scene, how to represent that, how to... Um, um, how to, uh, and with the, with the respect for the victims. I suppose this is a diff, slightly different one to say Little Boy Blue. Little Boy Blue was, uh, was about the, 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 the killing of a, of a young boy in Liverpool. And it's, it's really what your kind of story point of view is. And, and that was largely through the kind of the, the, the parents of Little Boy. So the story kind of motor, if you like, was much more emotionally driven. Whereas this, as the story unfolds, we, we tell it from different points of view from the police investigation for it then shifts to the family's own investigation um, and then plot spoiler but in terms of um, Julie Mugford's story that then comes through sort of midway through the through the piece so there is no single point of view that's driving it so uh, there are decisions all the way along about how you tell that story from those kind of shifting points of view but in in, in some ways I get I guess this is a slightly more kind of um, measured overall view of this story. Yeah. I mean, Julie, as you mentioned, but also Anne, are so vital to this series, aren't they? Two, two very strong women who had a lot of courage to, uh, to come forward even when they weren't being believed. I mean, do you want to talk us through the part that they played? Uh, yeah, for me, I mean, they, they were a massive, you know, the, the way into the story in, in a way that, you know, we start with, with Colin, uh, and, and we enter the story really, I guess, in this episode with Colin and the, and, and the, the kind of that emotional um, journey that he goes on. But then as the story evolves, we then tell the story initially through from Anne's point of view, the family's point of view and then and then Julie. 
Um, and they very much kind of came through for me personally, I think for all of us as very much kind of heroes in the piece in a way. And, and that was, as I said before, that was an aspect of, those were aspects of the story that I didn't know until I came to this project. And I think a lot of people don't know really. And, um, and so that's uh, another fascinating human element to this story that actually there is a crime and there's a, there's a sort of investigation that has clues and evidence, but it's all wrapped up and entangled with human relationships yeah. um, within, within a family. Um, and so it's incredibly complex and fascinating. And Freddie, for you, those scenes, you're acting on lots of different levels, I suppose, because Julie knows some things that we don't know about at first and Anne suspects. And so you've got lots of different levels that you're playing at. What was it like acting with, with those actresses? Oh, amazing. I mean, wonderful. Uh, you know, and you develop... I think the, 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 the one really great thing about the whole company, and I was lucky enough to know lots of them before we began, Mark and Cresta particularly, is that uh, you needed a, a kind of a sort of touchstone of, of levity and brightness on set in order to juxtapose the subject matter. Uh, and so we were able, fortunately, while we were doing it, to laugh and enjoy ourselves. I and mean, it was one of the most enjoyable shoots I've ever had and probably ever will have. But, and it was very necessary. And I think, I think along with these searingly accurate and highly detailed performances that were impeccably researched, not just by the whole you know, research team and, and the production team, but by the individual actors themselves, there was, there was a playfulness between us all where we enjoyed going to work with each other. And I, I hope that connection is felt yeah. on the screen. Are there particular scenes that you found particularly difficult? Uh, I think the most difficult scene was actually probably the, in that episode, the, the scene where I, I hear, or Jeremy hears about the news of uh, his, fa his family being killed. It's quite a difficult one to describe this, so you bear with me. <laughs> uh, uh, I, you have to find a means of beget, becoming very truthfully emotional, and Paul and I decided, were, were very keen on making sure that it was a very seemingly, at least, genuine reaction to a piece of news like that. <laughs> Uh, and uh, I just went away, just got myself in a, in, a, in a place to be able to do it. And funnily enough, the, 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 the way I, was I felt a best able to do that was through doing it for the boys. Uh, and Paul kept the camera rolling very generously, never stopped the takes with a cut, you know, just said, let's go again, let's go again. So you build up the kind of necessary emotion and, 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 and listening to and using the other actors in the scene to help you get there and then ultimately trying to give the best performance you possibly can to serve the story that serves that serves them yes serves the boys yeah absolutely well one of the things that seems very striking watching it 35 years ago 1985 doesn't seem so long ago until you realize how far we've come with, with police forensics but also with the way that we talk about mental health is that something that you were very keen to to get across yeah i mean i think it's the two of the other reasons why i think it was really important to make this one there is a there is inherent in the six hours is a story of what is effectively a botched police operation mm. um, despite the heroism of many of the police and yeah, mental health was seen very differently. And I hope, and I, again, I think this is something that, that Colin might want to talk about as well, but you know, think, things have changed a lot and it was one of the important things for us in making this. Do you want to say anything else about that? No, I, I think exactly that. I think um, you know, the, the attitude towards mental health uh, at that time, you know, it was, was unquestionably part of the 
flaws in the initial police mm -hmm. investigation. Mm -hmm. Created a sort of myopia where, you know, the, the idea of a woman with mental health could suddenly develop kind of quite extraordinary powers of strength and other things, uh, like, and be classified as a nutter with a gun. That's sort of, sort of kind of misogynistic and uh, backward thinking about mental health is really, it's, it's something to reflect on. It's one of the things mm. that attracted me to why, why do this story now? It's one of, the, one of those things that the approach to policing, our inability, inherent inability to just trust if someone's telling us the truth or not without forensic evidence, without real, you know, click, uh, yeah, logic and rational thought, as well as um, the approach to mental health. Those two things at that time in society really clouded the course of events yeah. and it's taken this time to be able to reflect on that. I think. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that nutter with a gun line is, yeah. is a real line. It's a real line. That's, that's yeah. not a yeah. Chris Murska line. I mean, he mm -hmm. uses it brilliantly, but that was a quote from the time. Yeah. yeah. Colin, do you still have your microphone? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder if you'd be able to just talk a little about that, about the way that Sheila has been portrayed here. I don't know whether you feel that that has sort of righted a, a, a wrong that, that she was done. It is on. Yeah. Hi, is that okay? Yeah. Perfect. Thank you. Sorry, I missed your question there. I just wondered if you wanted to respond to that and talk about how Sheila is portrayed on screen there. And, and, and how the perception of mental health has changed from the, that time to now. I think at that point in the story, um, she was really quite heavily medicated. So uh, her ability to even pour some baked beans onto a t slice of toast was pretty poor, so her hand-to-eye coordination was not there. At the time, I was led to believe it was just a small-bore shotgun, so I just accepted it. I didn't understand there was a rifle. Once I knew there was a rifle, I knew she couldn't do it. But the reason I got involved in writing the book was to try and understand something I had no knowledge of or understanding of, of why this should happen in this family. So it was a long journey of, of, of tr trying to figure out why it happened with nobody to actually ask, um, apart from Jeremy, which is why I wrote to him. It was rather naive. But, um, and also recognizing that I was also part of that dynamic of the family. So I had to sort of put myself in the story as well. I couldn't be an observer. Um, but it was a very long, difficult journey. It took nine years to write the book and a lot of introspection. Um, and I think I got to some sort of understanding. Um, and I think a lot of the problem was down to the toxic relationship between Sheila and her mother. Um, because when she actually her, met her biological mother, it was the happiest day in her life, apart from when she gave birth to the twins. Um, that doesn't come into the story, sadly. Um, so I, I, I think there's a lot to do with the toxic relationship. And I asked a big question about nurture and nature. Yeah, was it the, the environment that created her illness? Or, and if you look at it, you know, you've got ostensibly three people who have had a breakdown. June was treated for manic depression. Then Sheila was treated for schizophrenia and psychosis. And then ostensibly Jeremy's a psychopath. What was going on in that family? So that's why I wrote the book. And as I say, there's a lot more to unfold which couldn't actually fit into the story of the film. Mm. Well, some of those are dealt with, aren't they? We do find a little bit yeah. about yeah, the family. It's, it's one of the challenges, and that's why if anyone does want to look into it in more detail, I would mm. urge them to read Carol's book and Colin's book as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely.
Thank you, Colin. I'm sure there'll be plenty of other questions either for our panel or for Colin. Do pop your hand up if you have one. We've got microphones. Uh, there's a lady in the middle there. If you could just uh, say who you are, your, your name and, and what you do, that would be helpful. Thank you. And who your question's for, if relevant. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes. yes. Yeah. That was thoroughly enjoyable and I couldn't look away for a moment, actually. Fantastic. Uh, my name's Lynette. I'm a producer as well. Um, I wondered if your research reached out to and included any living members of the police force who may still be alive, and were you allowed access to any of the files? Um, we, it, our research did include um, interviews with some surviving members of the police force, and we did get... We have had access through different means, access to um, files, but nothing that has... Nothing, to my knowledge, that is contested as being non-disclosed in any way. We did months and months of research to make sure and we, we saw a lot of the um, original evidence and um, crime scene photographs as well. Because mm. I think, again, it was really important for us to get things right. There's so many grey contested areas in this case. So as Paul said, you know, they spent probably four months as you know, Lee also said, finding that house to make sure. So getting those things right and making sure that for this story, the accuracy of that crime narrative was right was absolutely crucial. I wonder if it would be helpful actually at this point just to give a quick timeline because this has been researched for a long time, hasn't it? Yes, you know, <laughs> as, as with most kind of, you know, dramas or drama, it's, you know, this has been in, you know, I think we've been working on this for two and a half, three years. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Thank you for your question. Are there any others? Yes, hello. Pop a microphone to this. Thank you. Thank you very much, although I can't say enjoy is the word I would have picked. I thought it was compelling, though. Um, uh, sorry, Helen Jerome, a development producer. Um, two of the things that really fascinated me, one was the music, which I thought was really kind of chilling, and it really added to the atmosphere, and I wondered about the choice of that. And the second thing was... I really loved the very slow camera work where you were going through the house and everything like that. And a lot of crime things, it's really fast and you're just like running through woods and things like that. I thought it was really interesting, the choice of that, and I wondered if you could just talk about those two things. You should yeah, talk about um, I, as I said earlier, it was a very kind of... We uh, wanted a, a kind of measured approach, if you like. And, uh, you know, there is... You know, the origins of this story, in terms of my memory, was is something quite sensational in a way. And, the, and there's the you know the kind of the tabloid version of it, uh, and we were all kind of very aware of that, and, and wanted to be very exacting about our telling of the story and the, and the way that the story unfolds. And uh, and so I suppose that kind of visual approach came partly out of that wanting to be you know to be have quite a sober view of the of the of the story in a way and yet still be exacting in terms of um being um very kind of clinical in terms of understanding that crime scene as i've, as I've spoke about before and the music uh, the score kind of plays into that as well again be, being very wary that the end it's always a kind of challenge in a way because ultimately we are making you know for want of a better term a form of entertainment you know it's a drama and it, and it has to have certain kind of, it has to work in that way. Um, but with a, a story like this, it, it, you know, it's a very fine line in terms of how you, 
how you present that uh, and that it doesn't become um, a genre piece, if you like. Um, so that's where all those kind of decisions kind of came from. And, and the music really, the score was as much about atmosphere as, as anything else. And really, you know, we talked work that Niall Byrne, who's a brilliant composer, uh, talked a lot with him about the sort of the sounds of the countryside, the sounds of that kind of rural Essex um, landscape in a, in a baking hot summer if you like, in, you know, the kind of cracking of the earth and the, and the wind, the breeze going through the, uh, the, the, the wheat and barley fields. And, and, it, and it sort of evolved, I guess, the score kind of evolved out of that. So it's a soundscape as much as, much as anything to achieve a certain atmosphere without, um, without feeling too sort of manipulative, I guess, in terms of the, the genre. Thanks for joining us and remember you can listen to previous BAFTA sessions and podcasts at guru.bafta.org.